the clientele is changing dramatically. The workforce is not. The administration has decided to empower the same people, structures, and systems that caused harm to people of color in the first place. Knowing that they might experience trauma as a professional. We do hear some really specific examples of racism in the schools. Is, is, is this an emergency? This is not going to be easy. If you take the people that have made change, they didn't cry at night, didn't feel lonely, identify, ostracize, that's not true. Change doesn't happen without a little bit of pain. Plant those seeds and become those teacher encouragers. If you love this profession, be a teacher encourager. I am a Teach Plus Rhode I Island Policy Fellow. Teach Plus Rhode Island. And I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. And I'm from Teach Plus Rhode Island. being here on the commission, the special legislative commission to study and provide recommendations to encourage more people of color to enter the field of education. So I'd like to call the meeting to order. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Furr. I'm currently the chief of teaching and learning at RIDE. Um, prior to working at RIDE, I was a high school teacher for about 11 years. Um, I've had a few different positions at RIDE, so I'll just skip over that part of it. Um, we're happy to come and share some information with you. I think some of the information side that we're sharing you may be familiar with already, but we're also going to share a little bit of information about some things that we are currently looking at, some things that we're currently getting started on, um, but additionally some other things that we're thinking about. So we do know from research and multiple studies indicate the positive outcomes for students. And when we talk about the positive outcomes for students, we're not only talking about the positive outcomes for our students of color, we're talking about all of our students. And so the focus that we want to have as we do this work is we want to look at recruiting, supporting, retaining more educators of color in the workforce for all of Rhode Island, um, not only some communities and not only for some students. We did share here just a few of the studies that reinforce um, are thinking, and then I added an, an article as well. So there's a study from Tennessee that starts to look at student achievement and what happens with student achievement. It involved black elementary students. We have the study from Florida about that was really focused on increased exposure to Hispanic math and science teachers. We have a North Carolina study um, around black students who were assigned to a class with a black teacher in third, fourth, fifth grades. Um, and then an additional article from The Atlantic that came out around the benefits of having teachers of color and how that extends to white students as well and not only students of color. And so why diversity matters? It matters because it can have an impact on student outcomes for all students and all student outcomes. So when we look at our educators in the state, you can see it shows that 89% of our educators are white, 11% of our educators non-white, and for our students, um, that split is quite different. So 57% of our students being white and 43% non-white. And so clearly, we have a gap in the racial makeup of our educators um, as compared to our students in the state of Rhode Island. And so if you, for example, want to use um, Asian, Asian students as a category, so for students it's 3%, for educators it's 1%, but if you go on to look at Hispanic, Latino, 26% of our students, 3% of our educators. And so there's a much more significant gap there. And then as you go on, if you look at um, white, so 57% of our students and 89% of our educators. And so this was just an example to break out some of the race categories where we collect data and show you exactly what some of those gaps look like. This next slide is providing you with a similar look, but by some of our communities. So certainly not every community in Rhode Island, 
but some of our communities. So I'm going to take Cranston, for example. So if you look across, you can see that Cranston has 52% white students, 48% non-white students. When you look at their educators, it's 92% white and 8% non-white. If you go down the table to Providence, we look at 9% of the students um, categorized as white, classified as white, 91% non-white, 76% of the educators are white, and 24% of the educators are non-white. And so obviously, depending on the community that you're looking at, the gap is much, is much wider. Karen Alzate. I'm a state representative for the city of Pawtucket. So I was born and raised here in Rhode Island. And when I decided that I wanted to run, there's a lot of issues, right? So I was um, I was in the beginning of my master's program, and I got a master's from the uh, from Roger Williams University in community development. Part of the program, what um, my professors um, did was they wanted us to kind of pick out issues that we see in our community that really affect who we are. We had a diverse group of people. And so, you know, as I was doing that, I was thinking, I was, I didn't initially wanted to run because I like to be more behind the scenes. However, I started to realize that a lot of the issues that were affecting my community were, were being affected by the people who were in leadership and the people in leadership don't necessarily represent my, me or you know the community that I that I believe uh, I am a part of. So then when I made it to the house, I had a conversation with another rep and she had really great advice. One of the advice that she gave to me was, you know, treat every term like it's your last term. So figure out what it is that you want to do. Like who do you if this is your last term, what is it that you want to be known for? Like, what good did you, did you want to do here? You know, what did you run on? And so, I mean, I ran on education, I ran on reproductive health care, and I ran on housing and small businesses. I took education because during my, my master's program, we talked a lot about education, right? And at the same time, this is kind of where the John Hopkins report came out in June of that year. And so, you know, that was really devastating. <laughs> First at six, we're busy working breaking news. A scathing report on Providence Public Schools was just released in the last half hour. Among the findings that the capital city school system is struggling to support its students. Eyewitness News reporter Steph Machado has been going through the report and continues, so continues now in our breaking news coverage. Steph. The explosive report conducted by Johns Hopkins describes deep systemic dysfunctions in Providence Public Schools that the authors say negatively impact learning opportunities and safety for students. The 93-page report paints a dark picture of the city's schools. The researchers went inside classrooms of a dozen schools, which they do not name, coming out with this stunning observation. Quote, very little visible student learning was going on in the majority of classrooms and schools we visited. In one example, in an English language arts class, they saw no authentic reading. The researchers were disturbed by the condition of the school buildings, writing, quote, the worst reduced seasoned members of the review team to tears. A team member observed at one school, quote, the smell of stale urine in the physical therapy room was so strong I had to hold my breath. 
I actually was sick after I finished reading the report. Would you allow your child to attend a Providence public school? No. Very clearly, no. Rhode Island's new education commissioner, Angelica Infante Green, requested the review in light of Providence's abysmally low test scores. It's completely and totally unacceptable. And that we've allowed it to go on for so long is criminal, really. Providence Mayor Jorge Lorza said in part, quote, this report paints a grim, concerning picture of our school district. We need wholesale transformational change, and I look forward to working with state partners, teachers, parents, and students to accomplish it. It's unclear whether the state will ultimately take over the Providence School District, Infante Green said this. I have been pretty clear that if the conversations don't lead to better instruction, support in the classroom, that I'm not having it. And the report's authors did not offer recommendations for what should happen next, leaving that up to city and state leaders. There will be a series of public forums starting Wednesday night to discuss the report's findings and what's next to improve Providence schools. In Providence, I'm Steph Machado, Eyewitness News. And so going into a lot of discussions and putting all of those things together, I decided that even though I'm not an educator, but I'm very passionate about the importance of education, um, you know, coming from, uh, from two immigrant parents, I believe that education is the way to do anything. I think that education is the way to succeed. And so I decided that putting a commission together to study how we can get more people of color into the education field seems a little like, oh my God, another commission, right? Like commissions don't matter unless there's no money towards it. However, I feel like if we start to have these conversations at, at you know, the political state level, then we can put money towards this. People will understand that in order for us to be able to have good education, we can't just say that we need money. We also have to show that we need money. And so I felt like if we could bring in real genuine people to this commission, so I was able to um, submit a sub A so that way we can have more community partners. Uh, and I worked with Latino Policy Institute um, Executive Director Marcela Bentoncourt, who she really helped me um, carve out who, you know, the specifics were, right? Um, and who was important to have on there. So I've tried to be really intentional about, about the people that we put on this commission because it's not about, we already know who, who are the players are, right? But I really wanted to hear from the people who are like the boots on the ground, right? I'm still trying to play it out because, because of everything that happened with Corona, we had to stop the commission. Um, however, I always say that there's like all these different phases to this commission. So, um, you know, I tried to be intentional about who we we're going to bring in. So we brought Ride in and Ride is kind of um, gave us the baseline of where they are on this particular issue and what it is that they're doing. And, um, you know, the commissioner is, you know, she knows that this is a problem, right, especially in Rhode Island. Um, and so I know that she's trying to address it, which has been great. that the commissioner, Commissioner Infante Green, has started this year is meetings with educators of color who come, they're coming together, um, I don't remember off the top of my head how many times they've met already, but we're, one of the things that we're asking them are, what have your experiences been? What have you experienced in our schools for those who may be still teachers or who are no longer teachers? Um, what, 
have been some of the barriers for either themselves or for colleagues and friends that they know in wanting to become teachers. Um, so what you have on the screen are some of the feedback that we've gotten, that new teachers of color have no allies or mentors in schools, that teachers are afraid to speak up. We also hear that teachers of color feel segregated from their white colleagues, um, a lack of teacher prep programs for educators of color, so a lack of the educators of color in the pipeline is something that they've heard about. Um, teachers, teacher contracts allowing bad teachers to keep their job and so not so many opportunities for new or young teachers. Um, we do hear some really specific examples of racism in the schools and with adults and colleagues um, displaying racism towards um, their educator, their colleagues of color in some of our schools. And th these are the experiences. So th these are some of the things that we've heard about in the meetings with our educators of color. A couple of last notes about a lack of connection between schools and student families is something else that has come up. And then potentially, or as some people have reported, no compassion or understanding of the traumas that educators of color deal with or have dealt with um, in entering this profession. Uh, hello, my name is Stacy Jones. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island Fellow, and my background is a little different from most educators. I have been teaching for about 14 years, 15 years, but I was a career changer. Initially, I started as a newspaper reporter, and after that, I was a corporate speechwriter. For most of my careers, especially the newspaper, I always had a strong sense of kind of fairness and advocacy um, and kind of opportunity. Um, so that's one of the reasons I shifted into education because I felt there was a need to open opportunities for students of color, especially. And I thought someone kind of from the outside world looking in, I may be able to kind of push that forward. So. Um, this kind of equity issue has always been on my mind, um, whatever career I was in. And once I got into education, um, I applied it there. So my, my big issue these days is educator diversity. So educating, uh, diversifying the educator workforce in Rhode Island or really wherever I can influence it is kind of my passion now. And I kind of came to that, not just from my advocacy kind of mindset, but also once I changed careers to education, it was very difficult to get a job as a teacher and still kind of almost impossible to get a job as an administrator. My own experiences also prompted me to kind of dig a little deeper into how can this be? How can we hear this cry um, but people just like me are out there, but are not getting access to the system. So that prompted me to kind of write an op-ed that was published um, in Education Post. And really that, that op-ed outlined what I felt were the key hindrances, the key obstacles to really diversifying the educator workforce. I kind of packaged it as the gatekeeping kind of HR, human resource, human resources in there, their process, their recruitment practices. I address superintendents and their accountability and also just 
educators in general, what is their role in diversifying the workforce? So one of the uh, issues that I really focused on or am focused on now is um, hiring practices, the hiring process. And there are, I think, two separate issues. There, there are probably more, but two that I think um, are really important. And one of the issues is just the way we hire, how just the interview process and what qualifies as a qualification. So say, for example, if a school is stating that cultural competency or diversity or um, leadership, whatever whatever the, the goal is, those should be weighted differently during the interview process. So for example, if cultural competency is what you're looking for, is diversity is what you're looking for, if you're looking for someone familiar with social emotional learning, then that should carry more weights than say, oh, you were a department head. You've been at the school for 10 years. Um, you have so many degrees. But what I'm finding is that what the stated needs are for educators and educational leaders is not making its way into kind of the criteria, the um, assessment during the interview process. So there's a huge disconnect between what is actually explored in, in an interview process and what a school district says they need. So that's one. And just for example, in my experiences, typically the uh, experience is very, uh, I would say, impersonal. So again, there's a disconnect. We're saying that we want leaders that are good at communicating or leaders um, with a diversity of talents. But in the interview process, there's typically a panel interview. There's usually six to 12 people around a table and you have to adhere to a script. Someone reads a question, you have a minute to answer the question. There's not actually a conversation. There's just, I asked you a question, you gave an answer, there's no nuance. So again, absolutely no relation to how the real world actually works. There's no black and white when you run a school, um, but we never get to explore the gray areas in the interview process. So typically then, if that's the process, you end up getting people that are not the dynamic leaders that you say you're looking for. You're getting people that are good at kind of putting out jargon or putting out the keywords that they know perks people's ears. So that's been my experience in the hiring process. Another thing that I've experienced in the hiring process is, and I'm not sure if this has taken hold in Rhode Island, but when I've interviewed in other states, it is very popular. And this is this um, computer learning, I mean, computer interviewing, one-way video interviews is what they call it. And the problem with that is, again, if I'm speaking to a computer screen and answering questions, that's not a natural assessment of someone's ability because you can't ask for clarification. You can't see if someone is really understanding what you're saying. You can't read the room. These are all skills that help you adapt to your environment. And these are leadership skills that are kind of stripped away in this process. But you also have to assess too. Are you assessing now someone's comfortable 
comfortability with um, dealing with technology, talking through a computer, because again, just say in SATs or other things, you know, that's a bias. That's really not what you're assessing for the job, but people may come across as uncomfortable with this whole process, even though it has nothing to do with what they'll actually do on the job. So these are just a couple examples of ways I think the hiring process is really, really limiting who can access the system, especially for educators of color and even career changers, people that are new to the system. And underlying all of this is what I kind of call, and this is a little more difficult to address, but I call it, you know, comfort hiring, where people like to hire people that are like themselves, that they feel comfortable with, that they know. I don't really know how to get rid of that because it's human nature, whether you call it insular hiring, cronyism, but in Rhode Island especially, I would put that right up there. That may be even more prevalent than, I would put it on equal pairing with the other two examples I just gave, I would say. But this network of, I know you, I have a friend, it's really um, everywhere and it's hard to break if you did not grow up in Rhode Island, which I'm not from Rhode Island, I didn't grow up here. Um, so that is a barrier as well. Again, as far as marketing or publicity, uh, school districts, superintendents, principals, they do express a concern about, oh, we we would love more educative, educators, educators of color. We can't find them. But for example, in the interview process, if none of the people that are called in to be interviewed are educators of color, if no educators of color apply, that is, someone has to oversee this process. And at the moment, there's no one actually digging deep into the process to see where are pipelines, where can we establish recruiting networks, who's actually showing up and being interviewed and called in, what is the makeup of our, if they're still using a panel interview, what was the makeup of our interview panel? So, where I see accountability is just like teachers are evaluated, if this is really a goal, then it has to be a goal that whether it's human resource personnel, um, administrators or superintendents, it's really a point that has to be assessed. This is one of your key job responsibilities. It's not just, oh, another year and yeah, we didn't get any educators of color. That's too bad. There has to be some accountability as far as job security, job evaluation, and let, and even legally, what are the ramifications for that? So I just think that needs to be stepped up instead of, you know, kind of a shrug of the shoulders. Oh, we'll try again next year. Um, because teachers can't say that they're value, evaluated, you know, quite strictly on several different points. Um, and I don't think that type of scrutiny has made its way to these um, different gatekeepers. This issue is not just an issue for educators of color. So the goal of diversifying the workforce is not just my problem because I'm black or it's not just someone else's problem because they're Dominican. Um, it has to be everyone's problem. So white educators need to step up to the plate, um, whether that is advocating to administrators, whether that is kind of taking note of who is being hired 
and the process is being used. Um, maybe it have, even has to be, oh, I'm not going to refer my friend. I'm going to encourage administration to reach out to some other network. But at the moment, the only people that really seem to be shouldering this effort are educators of colors or people that work in a school district with the majority of students, um, students of color. And still within that, within that frame, it's still mostly the educators of color who are, are trying to make a change. Um, so, and that's really kind of been a growing issue now, um, whether you go to educational conferences or just kind of uh, discussions in different networks, is what is the role of white educators um, in dealing with their, this problem? Um, what is their role in keeping the status quo? Because obviously, if this pipeline of kind of friends or comfort hiring is dismantled, obviously that's a loss for a certain group, a gain for another group, um, and that has to be acknowledged. So that was really my third point, that if we're going to really change a system that is controlled at the moment by uh, white educators, they have to come to the table and acknowledge that it's a problem. Otherwise, nothing's really going to change because the people on the outside don't control the levers of hiring. So I'm Anna Riley. I'm the Deputy Commissioner for Instructional Programs. Um, this is my third week on the job. <laughs> uh, prior to this work, I was a superintendent in Portsmouth for six years, and before that, I spent 22 years as a teacher, principal, and central office person in Massachusetts. This isn't work that we can do alone, and so we have connected with some partners. Uh, the New England Secondary School Consortium has a task force on educated diversity because this isn't just a Rhode Island problem. New England has done a very poor job of attracting um, teachers of color, and so this is um, a problem many people are working on, and so we want to leverage that expertise and the work that's already happening to help inform our work. Um, we'll also be working with Brown University's Anberg Institute. They're going to be working on a, a teacher predictor model, and they have applied for a grant to be able to do that work with us. So we had a meeting actually earlier this morning with the group at Annenberg that started this work. Um, they've already been able to compile quite a bit of data that um, from Providence specifically, and they've been looking at um, trends starting at the point of applications. And so they're able to look at data at how many applicants are they getting for different positions, how many applicants of color are in those pools, how many applicants are then getting interviewed, how many are getting hired, um, what do vacancies really look like within the city of Providence. And so they have some great preliminary data. Um, I might have mentioned to them this morning that this might be a good <laughs> commission to come before and share some of that information at a future meeting, so I'm happy to have that conversation. But we have been able to provide them with some statewide data because we're asking them to not only look at Providence, we're asking them to look at our entire state and understand what the pipeline looks like, what it looks like in preparation, what it looks like for applicants, for vacancies, hiring um, in every district across the state. And so we'll have more and more to share as they continue their work. So if you look at this, these are some of the strategies that um, 
the commissioner has been working on to incentivize and recruit world-class educators to Rhode Island. So we are getting ready to launch a national teacher recruitment campaign, um, mostly through social media. We don't have a lot, we can't advertise on television, we don't have that kind of money. Um, but we will do our best to push this out through our groups and use social media to really um, do a national recruitment campaign. And then we have some opportunities to help attract folks to Rhode Island. So the Wavemaker program, that fellowship's being expanded to teachers, so STEM teachers can get some um, money for, for student debt. Um, a housing subsidy for teachers, so first-time ho homeowners, there's a $7,500 support for that. It's being extended to teachers who, who are gonna be first-time homeowners here in Rhode Island. And then um, finally, I'll, some of the work that we're doing is expanding reciprocity with other states and trying to make other certification changes so that teachers who are coming from other states um, don't have to navigate such a, a deep paperwork path to get through our certification process. And then some of the work that we've been doing specifically here um, with our current teachers of color and supporting them are looking at ways that we can provide pathways for our teacher assistants to become teachers. So we heard at, at our teacher of color meetings that there are so many great teacher assistants in the Providence schools um, who, who are, are of color and would love to, they would be perfect candidates. So how do we help them create a pathway that facilitates them obtaining their bachelor's degree and a teaching degree so that they can join our teacher ranks? Um, working with the prep programs for recruitment and, and support initiatives. And then again, just those ongoing meetings Lisa uh, discussed um, with our educators of color. And those are um, really powerful meetings where folks really can share with us what are the obstacles, what are the things that are in their way and what's keeping them from being successful and most importantly, what's making them think about possibly leaving and what we can do to stop that? How do, how do we keep that talent here and how do we support them so that they feel the desire to stay and grow their ranks? So we want to continue doing that and working to promote cultural competency and professional learning for all staff across the board and that's something that's um, starting in Providence but not just in Providence, it's happening in other districts across the state and we want to try to mobilize that and put those groups together so that we can support districts who haven't maybe thought about this yet, um, about how they can implement that and bring that to the districts. Hi, my name is Carlin Howard and I am the Chief Impact Officer with uh, Equity Institute. I, along with my partner, Carla Vigil, got together and we started something called Angelese of Color, Rhode Island. Originally, it was just a way to bring folks together, particularly people from historically marginalized backgrounds, um, to talk about education. And it evolved into more of a networking slash meetup space where we would bring people in from across our community to share about the work that they were doing uh, and give people a platform to discuss some of their most pressing needs and challenges and opportunities. Uh, and also just give people the space to connect with other folks. And overall, just feel valued and appreciated uh, and showered with love and affection. Uh, we started that four years ago and it has grown uh, pretty tremendously since then and now has evolved um, as an initiative with the Equity Institute. Uh, so my partner and I, as we started to get more uh, inquiries into supporting schools and districts and building more equitable school environments, particularly when it came to hiring and recruiting practices with schools, uh, trying to retain uh, educators, particularly educators of color, 
Um, we decided that um, the best route for us to support schools in that particular type of work was by forming a um, nonprofit organization that focused on helping schools build equity into their policies, practices, and instructional uh, methodologies. Um, so we formed Equity Institute um, about a year ago, <clears throat> and has been growing ever since. Now today, here we are, where our big focus overall is just thinking about how do we build, uh, redesign rather, school systems uh, that are more inclusive, that value diversity, and that really think about everything from an equity lens. When we talk about equity, not talking about this ideal of everybody gets the same thing, but more so people get the things that they need when they need it. It's more personalized, if you will. And trying to figure out how do you set up systems, uh, structures within school buildings, across districts and schools to actually facilitate that. Um, definitely no, no easy task whatsoever, especially considering that many of the customs traditions that we follow in schools have been in place for many, many years. So pushing against the tide, if you will, is a very difficult thing. It's something we definitely understand and appreciate the gravity and magnitude of that challenge. Um, but it's something that we really think is vital and important for us um, in an effort to improve the, the state of our, our nation, the state of our globe, really, um, so that we're developing young people into problem solvers, thinkers, designers, we're equipped with the necessary skills and knowledge uh, to solve some of the world's greatest and grandest challenges and problems. Um, so for us, when we talk about equity, we're not just talking about, again, going back to what I said earlier, just the policies and practices, but we're also thinking about what does that mean in terms of hiring for educators and staff more broadly. Um, oftentimes what we notice, and from my own even personal experiences, is that um, educators of color are often put into positions where they are seen as um, disciplinarians, uh, which in it, that in and of itself was often a taxing role, especially for a lot of people who in conversations um, and information interviews, all these things and ways of gathering da data we found that they struggle with the ideal of systemic oppression um, and experiencing that um, through their students and also through their own personal experiences, uh, which made um, working in education particularly uh, taxing for them and led to many of them leaving the field. And interestingly enough, of course, is that that's not necessarily just a problem that educators of color face, but more broadly, why educators also cite the challenges and stresses of being in the classroom or being in schools, maybe for different reasons in terms of how identity and, and systemic oppression plays into that. In a lot of ways, follows the, the similar trend. While our percentage is particularly low as compared to many states, um, nationally, the average uh, for educators of color across schools is about 20%. Now, you, you look at the actual demographics and trends and demographics across our country, and even here in our state for a more, in terms of more local context, um, the percentage of students of color is growing at a relatively rapid rate as compared to um, white students. 
for the first time in history back in uh, about six, seven years ago, um, a lot of the numbers in terms of data was showing that students of color for the first time made up the majority of the student population. For us, the reason why that is significant is because, I mean, of course, it's the first time in history, but now that our teaching population, given that it doesn't necessarily reflect that, you're going to you're having a situation where students on one end don't necessarily see their identities reflected within academic leadership, which there's research to suggest that that could be detrimental to the development of young people. But on the other end, it also begs the question of, do we truly believe in this post-racial society as many people have um, pushed? Right, because if we really truly believe that racism is dead and that we've moved beyond that, we also have to believe that talent is equally distributed across all groups of people. So if we're in a situation where certain groups of people are monopolizing on a uh, on a profession such as education, um, we have to ask ourselves why. Right? Is it because of systemic racism? Is there some other forces at play that are causing that? And based on the numbers and research we have seen. Um, that that is one conclusion that we can draw. Also being something that's vital simply because there's a humongous gap in terms of academic achievement between uh, white students and students of color. And there hasn't been, at least in recent years, any significant traction in terms of closing that particular gap. And there's a big debate, of course, even if that gap is, is legitimate, given how do we define um, uh, academic achievement and how do we define what is the knowledge that is important within our context. But either way, we know that students who are not as successful within our current context of schools uh, tend to have uh, more limited life outcomes in terms of um, careers, financially, um, happiness, uh, um, in terms of success, in terms of how they define it at least. Um, and we're trying to make sure that everybody has that opportunity be great and to contribute to, in my opinion, what is the greatest threat to our existence. Because at the end of the day, a lot of things that we pour into is, is rooted in this ideal of how do we ensure that we, as a community, as a greater population of folks, are able to survive? How, are, how is our, as us as the human race, if you will, able to continue with our survival? And then also, how do we ensure that people are able to thrive and pursue happiness as they see fit? These are the things that we feel are vital as we continue to evolve as a race in terms of a human race, in terms of technological advancements and thinking about what the future holds for us. There are going to be certain threats to our existence that are on the forefront that we need intelligent, nimble folks to really start thinking about. And the way we produce that, in my opinion, is by maximizing the talent that exists across our schools so that they to become those folks who are figuring out how to address some of these, these things in the world. Hello, my name is Raymond Steinmetz and I'm a Teach Plus Senior Policy Fellow. 
Thank you for listening to the Teach Plus podcast. Please join us next week as we discuss Rhode Island's teacher preparation programs and the work being done to improve the new teacher pipeline. Look for new episodes every Friday on all major podcast platforms.